Right, morning everyone. Hopefully you have one of these worship guides. I've gotten some messages from individuals I don't know who have tuned in to join us on Sunday mornings. And so if you're one of those people and you don't have a, a worship guide, then you can check on the sermon audio page for our church. And each week I'll put up kind of a post that has an option to download this guide on Friday or Saturday, or you can sign up for our church's weekly announcements, and then I'll, I'll send it out, and you'll also get the information about the times we're streaming Sunday morning, but also uh, during the week. So you'll get the information regarding Pastor Nathan, for example, this coming week for Pastor, Nation, Pastor Nathan's devotionals on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday evening of Passion Week leading us into Resurrection Sunday. And so I'd encourage you... Um, to check this out. It has the, if you're going to be joining us regularly at least, it has the words for the hymns, and it's got some prayer requests for our church, which we'd appreciate the, your prayer for, and then it's got the lessons for the sermon, as well as the family worship guide. We think the family worship guide is really important, and is especially a blessing during these times that we're together so much during the week as families. Hopefully your ga- father's are gathering their families around the Word. If you don't have any children, then your family is, is you and your wife. And even if you're a single person, we hope that you would be taking advantage of this time to uh, be in the Word of God, reading and studying, uh, being in prayer, strengthening your relationship with, with your Lord and Savior. And this family worship guide that Pastor Nathan puts together each week will help direct your efforts and relates to the sermon. If you have any questions on this, you can reach out to me. I do want to say, while we're thankful to have any people tuning in to join us on Sunday mornings for, or on Wednesday nights for our webcasting, if, in case your church doesn't um, you know, offer something for you, we don't want this to be a permanent uh, event or, or approach for you. We are offering this because we can't gather together, but once churches can resume meeting, then our encouragement to you would be to tune in to... Um, or really to, to gather with your own church family. And if you don't have a church, then to find one. So this isn't meant to be any sort of permanent uh, approach to worship on the Lord's Day. We're glad to be able to provide it for you. If you've, if you've messaged me and said that you've enjoyed tuning in, we're thankful for the, the privilege of directing your hearts to Christ on Sunday mornings. But when we resume gathering as churches, we want you to find a church of your own, um, get plugged in, or if you had a church before this, go back to worshiping with them because there's really no replacement for being part of a church family where you uh, are with brothers and sisters that you love and that love you, that you can serve, and that uh, can serve and bless you as well. With that, why don't you take your Bibles, turn to Matthew 27. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. You can go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 27. Please stand with me. Begin at verse 1. It says, When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate the governor. Judas then is going to hang himself. It says, Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. 
Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. And you may be seated. Father, we thank you for this passage. I feel like it's been a few messages before this leading up to this moment to see Judas. I've appreciated the messages recently considering the ways that you as the potter and we as the clay are being formed and fashioned by what's taking place in our world, and hopefully we are soft and receptive and pliable to the work that you want to do in our lives, in our homes, in our states, in our countries, and in our world. And I pray that you would just use this time as we look at an individual who hardened himself in your hand, who was a discarded vessel, who was not sensitive to uh, or was not confident in the forgiveness that you would offer. He was not a repentant individual, and he ended up being a discarded vessel. Bring out the truths from it, Lord. Help us to know what to do with the sorrow that we experience. There was a sorrow Judas experienced, handled it wrongly, uh, there's a great amount of sorrow in the world at this time, and it will be worsening even over these coming weeks as the death toll increases. And so help us to handle this sorrow appropriately and learn from Judas' example. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me give you the background to this message. Last week, we were in Jeremiah 18. We were looking at the potter and the clay. We saw that the Jews were hard and stiff in God's hands. And so in the following chapter, Jeremiah 19, God sent Jeremiah to a field to discard a vessel that God had told him to obtain. And this vessel that was discarded and then shattered was a picture of what God was going to do with the Jews who were going to become a broken vessel themselves. Because a vessel that hardens themselves and the pot hardens themselves and the potter's hand is, is good for nothing but to be discarded. And that's what the Jews did. So they became this this discarded vessel. You could say they were discarded in Babylon. I told you the New Testament contains a discarded vessel or a picture of one, and that's Judas. On Wednesday, so that was on Sunday, and then on Wednesday night, we looked at those verses that prophesied of um, and Judas, or Matthew just mentioned them, these verses in Jeremiah that prophesied of Judas being that discarded vessel. And on Wednesday night, we finished with this verse, Acts 1.18, Judas purchased the potter's field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of the field, and all his entrails gushed out. I apologize for the semographic nature of this verse, but the fact is God has recorded it this way because Judas is meant to serve as the picture of a broken vessel that when discarded in this field breaks open the way that a, a vessel would break open. And Judas didn't actually purchase the field. It's worded this way because the field was purchased with the money that he, with, that he returned to the religious leaders. And then either, you know, the rope snapped or the branch broke, he fell headlong to the ground, and it gives us this, this imagery. Now this morning what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what led Judas to hang himself and I want to be clear about why we're looking at this and the relationship it has to everything taking place. Judas committed suicide because he was experiencing so much sorrow, and there's much sorrow in the world today. As Pastor Nathan shared, and as maybe some of you um, tuned into the briefings that our president has done, that sorrow is going to increase over the next week or two as the, hope, you know, the death toll increases and then hopefully begins to decline. But these are expected to be the worst weeks. Hopefully they end up being 
the worst weeks. And so the fact is, whatever amount of sorrow people are experiencing, it's going to increase over these coming weeks, and we need to know what to do with it. We need to handle it well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Judas, and we're going to see an individual who did not handle the sorrow in his life well. We're going to see what not to do from him, and then we're going to talk about what to do with that sorrow. I'm going to begin with a brief discussion of why Judas betrayed Jesus so we can understand why he was sorrowful later. Now, the most obvious reason is that he was a greedy individual. He was the treasurer for the group. John 12, 6 says that he was a thief. He had the money box. He used to take money from, from that. So we know at least part of the reason that Judas betrayed Jesus was for the, for the money he'd received from the religious leaders. Another reason that Judas betrayed Jesus relates to the Jews' view of Jesus' first coming. So kind of bring your minds to that uh, first century and what was taking place in Judea. They're oppressed by the Romans. They're persecuted. They're longing for their Messiah to come, and they expect that when this Messiah comes, what's he going to do? He's, or what's he going to be like might even be another way to say it. He's going to, and kind of use some of the heroes of the Jewish faith, he's going to be this individual like Moses, this great deliverer that's going to come on the scene, and he's going to deliver the Jews from the Romans like Moses had delivered Israel from Egypt. Or he's going to be this great military leader like David was. I mean, Jesus is, or the Messiah, is the son of David. And so this son of David is going to come, and he's going to deliver Israel or deliver the Jews from the Romans like David delivered the Jews in his day or Israel in his day from the Philistines. Or they expect that he's going to be like a Solomon-type figure. And really, it's not really or like Solomon. It's really and like Solomon. He's going to be all these heroic individuals rolled into one. He's going to come on the scene, and he's going to restore Israel to their zenith, like they knew under Solomon, those golden years of great prosperity and and fame and, and power, where the nations of the world are looking to Israel as kind of the superpower of the day. That's what they expect. Now, here's the question that I have for you. During Jesus' first coming, did it look as though the Jews were going to be overthrowing Rome at any point? Or did Jesus look at all like that military leader they saw in David or that great deliverer that they saw in Moses? Or did it look like Jesus is going to be restoring Israel to their golden years that they knew under Solomon? And the answer to that is no. He didn't look like this rich, powerful king and leader. And with that in mind, think about who has given up the most to follow Jesus. He had many disciples. Many of those disciples ended up abandoning him. Of all those disciples, the disciples who gave up the most to follow him were the 12. So they thought that they were going to rule and reign with Jesus. They expected that in this great kingdom that he's going to establish, they're going to receive the premier rewards, and they're going to have the highest positions. Mark 10, 28, Peter said to Jesus, see, we have left all and follow you, as though Jesus, you know, needed to be shown that or to consider that. And really what Peter is saying is, look at we, what we have given up. What are we going to get in return? What sort of place can we expect in your kingdom? A few verses later, Mark 10, 37, says, James and John said to Jesus, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. And so 
James and John, they, it wasn't enough just to have a, <laughs> an exalted position in Christ's kingdom. They expect to be on his right and left side. They're going to have the number two and the number three position behind him with their thrones right next to Jesus' throne. Uh, what they didn't understand was that in Jesus' first coming, when he talks frequently about the kingdom of God, this is a spiritual kingdom that he's bringing. He's going to establish the spiritual kingdom on the earth, and then it's going to be his physical kingdom that's going to be established after his second coming. Now, Judas, more, so we can tell that all the disciples were craving some amount of, of fame and fortune, wondering what's in it for them, wondering what they're going to get for all that they've given up. But we can imagine that of all, out of all of them, because of Judas' covetousness, he's going to crave that fame and that fortune the most. So you put yourself in his place for a moment. Think about this as like, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he's unbelievably popular, the crowds just uh, flocking to him, people desiring to be near him, even just to, you know, to reach out and touch him. And they're crowding so much so that he gets pushed out into the water and has to climb in a boat to, to preach. Really the most popular individual who'd ever, you know, been in the area of Judea. But what happened over time? He starts moving from that to experience this amount of rejection. He's becoming more un, unpopular. Over the last year in particular, Jesus is not becoming any richer. He's not becoming any more powerful. He's still walking around from place to place on these dirt roads. He still has nowhere to lay his head. He's serving people. He's teaching about humility, love, forgiveness, service, dying to self versus what? Versus teaching about greatness, ruling, and reigning. Instead of planning this rebellion against Rome that Judas and many of the other Jews wanted to see, he's talking about paying taxes to Rome. You wouldn't expect him to be saying that if he's going to be overthrowing Rome the next day. And so you can be sure that this doesn't go over well with Jesus. He can tell that this poor itinerant teacher that he's been following is not going to become this great, famous, powerful, rich ruler anytime. He can tell Jesus isn't going to be taking over and ruling and reigning the way that he expected. And the truth is, over the last year, it actually seems like Jesus has been moving in the opposite direction. The amount of opposition against him has been increasing. He's even predicted at different times that he's going to die. His deci- I mean, it wasn't just unfathomable to Judas. It was even unfathomable to the other disciples. There wasn't a point at which they ever understood that he was going to be killed. I mean, even in Acts 1, when he's about to ascend to heaven, they say, is it at this time that you're going to be setting up your kingdom? So they never understood the kingdom that he, that he brought even to that last minute. So he's becoming more unpopular, experiencing this rejection. And what does Judas think? He thinks that he's on this sinking ship. And so he betrayed Jesus because at least then he'd get some money out of it. And there's one final reason that Judas might have betrayed Jesus, and it relates to everything that we've been discussing. He very well might have betrayed Jesus to force him to act. How many times up to this point had the people tried to, or, you know, take Jesus and make him king? Quite a few. Listen to just this one instance. John 6, 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, which I'm sure this would have been thrilling to Judas, you know, the time has arrived. But then it says, Jesus departed again to the mountain 
by himself alone. And so every time it looked like he's about to become king, they're about to take him, he's finally going to be that ruling and reigning Messiah that they've been longing for, he does the opposite of what the people would expect because his time had not yet come, and he departs. He just slips away from them. And so Judas very well might have betrayed Jesus to force him to become the Messiah, force him to overthrow Rome, force him to become the king that he wanted to see. But things did not go the way that Judas expected. Look at Matthew 27, 1 again. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they plotted against Jesus to put him to death. When they had bound him, they led him away. They delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Judas is watching all of this take place. And then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, and specifically this means condemned to die, Judas was remorseful. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. First, we'll talk about the religious leaders, and then we'll talk about Judas. The religious leaders were meant to serve as mediators between God and men. And so their primary job was to offer sacrifices that atone for people's sins. And so people would feel convicted. They would go to the priest at the temple. Then the priest would offer a sacrifice for their sins. And then people would be alleviated of that guilt or shame they were experiencing because then they saw that their sin was covered or atoned for. Judas doesn't get to experience that. So he's still carrying this guilt and shame. The the religious leaders will not help him. He felt so terrible that he went to the priest to make restitution because in his mind, if there's anyone that can help him feel better, then it's going or absolve him, then it's going to be them. Instead of helping him, they said two things. First, they said, what is that to us? Which means, why are you telling us this? What do you expect us to do about it? At least in one translation, they said, what do we care? So what was the only thing that they wanted from Judas? For him to betray Jesus. And now that they've gotten him to do that, they have no further use for him. And the second thing they said is, you see to it. And this is their way of saying this is your problem. You have to deal with this. We're not going to help you. And the sad thing about this is that Judas probably went to them because he knew that there was nothing at this point that he could do to help Jesus. But the religious leaders could. And more than likely, that's why he comes to them. And he says, I have betrayed innocent blood. This man is innocent. He should not be condemned to die. That was not just a a commentary from Judas on Jesus' uh, integrity or righteousness. It's uh, a suggestion to them that this is an, an innocent man. He should not be condemned. He has not done anything wrong. They could have tried to get Jesus' sentence reversed. They could have told the authorities. They were the ones who had been so instrumental in applying pressure to Pilate. They were the ones who were calling out, threatening this uprising. It's the religious leaders that were basically warning Pilate, if you don't do this, it's going to get worse for you until the point that, and I'm not, I'm not a, at all um, minimizing Pilate's fault in this, but, they, but the religious leaders were the ones applying this pressure to the point where he says, I, I, I can't do anything else. I washed my hands of this and turned Jesus over to them. 
but they could have tried to get the authorities to do something different. They could have appealed to Pilate that Jesus was innocent, but they had no intention of this. They had been waiting way too long for this moment to do otherwise or to do what Judas wanted would have been doing the exact opposite of what they wanted. They wanted nothing more than to see Jesus crucified. Now let's talk about, let's talk about Judas. His actions don't look like they make sense. Because if you look at this, you say, if Judas betrayed Jesus, why would he be upset when he sees that Jesus is condemned? Doesn't he want to see Jesus killed? Isn't that why he turned them over to the religious leaders? If, if Judas didn't want to see Jesus dead, why did he betray him in the first place? And so it looks confusing. But the reality is, basically, Judas responded this way because things did not go the way that he expected. This was not what he what he wanted. We would expect Judas to rejoice. Instead, we see that he's grieved. And why is that? Because this was not only, it wasn't what he was anticipating, it also wasn't what he was desiring. Because notice it says, when Judas saw that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was remorseful. When he saw that, at that moment that Jesus was condemned to die, that's when Judas was remorseful. That's when he returned the money because he never imagined that his actions were going to result in Jesus' death. And he's not the only one who didn't believe Jesus would die. Jesus told the disciples multiple times, at least three that are recorded in the Gospels, that he was going to die. They never believed it either. And why wouldn't they believe it? Well, there's a few reasons. If you would just think of all of the prophecies about the Messiah and what the what the Jews expected, really the prophecies that Jesus would fulfill in his second coming. Those prophecies seemed incompatible or irreconcilable with the, the expectations um, or the, the things that Jesus was saying about his death. You had almost mutually exclusive prophecies. You have those prophecies about uh, uh, ruling and reigning and worshiped and adored king and messiah and then you had what seemed to them to be mutually exclusive ones psalm 22 isaiah 53 about this suffering servant they couldn't put them together and so what they did was they rejected these and they embraced these they couldn't see the two comings where jesus could fulfill isaiah 53 psalm 22 in his first coming and then all of the other prophecies about the ruling and reigning messiah in his second coming and so it really seemed to Judas that there was no way that Jesus would die. Second, Jesus seemed invincible. Think about all the miracles, all the things that he had done. If you had traveled with him, he didn't look like an individual who could be killed. He's an individual who's raising people from the dead. He knew things nobody could know, his, his wisdom, his omniscience. And so it would seem that if, if his life was in danger, he would know that. And third, Judas probably expected Jesus to escape. And why, why would Judas expect Jesus to escape? Because Jesus always escaped. How many times had his life been in danger and he had always found a way out? Every time it looks like he's going to be stoned, every time it looks like he's going to be killed, every time it looks like he's going to be arrested or seized. A few examples, Luke 4, 29, the people rose up, they thrust Jesus out of the city, 
They led him to the brow of the hill that they might throw him over the cliff. And then passing through the midst of them, he went away. John eight fifty nine. they took up stones to throw at Jesus. But he hid himself. He went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. John ten thirty one. the Jews took up stones to stone him. Therefore, they, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And so it just looked like there was no way that he could really be in any danger. Multiple times before this, he had found ways to escape, but not this time. And so Judas is watching this unfold. It's spiraling out of control. It's getting worse and worse and worse for him. He's seeing things that have never taken place before. Jesus is being beaten. I mean, he's been ridiculed before, but never before have people come up and treated him like this. Never have they plucked out parts of his beard. Never have they um, tortured him like this. Never has he been scourged. And it's just one terrible event after another. All of the abuse that he's experiencing until finally he's being led away to be killed. And it's just more than Judas can take because he knows that it's his fault. And so he takes the money back, he tries to get the religious leaders to help, but they won't. Now, to be clear, and this is a really important disclaimer for me to make, I'm not trying to minimize Judas's actions in this. I've heard people do that over the years, and that's not the case. What he did was terrible. There is no excuse. One time I thought John MacArthur made a good point that Judas is the wickedest man to ever live, because wickedness is determined by accountability. And nobody's ever had greater accountability than Judas to have walked with Jesus, heard all of those teachings, to seen all of that compassion and love and forgiveness and mercy, to be with God in the flesh, and then to turn from that and betray him. There could not have been a more heinous, there could not have been a more evil act. And so in many respects, you could say that Judas was the wickedest man to ever live because his accountability, nobody else's accountability, not even Hitler's or Stalin's could be as high as Judas's was. So that's not my point, but my point is this. There's an important lesson for us, and it's that things did not go as Judas expected. They went way beyond anything he ever imagined, which brings us to lesson one. We underestimate the consequences of our sin. Lesson one, we underestimate the consequences of our sin. Now, obviously, the consequences of our sin doesn't compare with Judas' sin in betraying Christ, but one of the things that took place in Judas' life that I think has great application for us is having to watch events spiral out of control or or move in a manner that we never imagined. We can relate to what Judas is experiencing in that we have sin, we've made decisions, and we did not expect it to go the way that it did. We underestimated the consequences Then we find ourselves sitting back, forced to watch things spiral out of control. Maybe we started spending money, and then we have to look back some years later, and we can't believe how much debt we have. Maybe we wasted time on activities that have no eternal value, and then we live with the regret of knowing that we can't get that time back. We're in a season where, for many of us, although we wouldn't prefer it to be this way, we might have more time than we've ever had. And I probably will not tire of challenging or encouraging you each week to take advantage of this season and receive the blessing from it that the Lord could have for you in spending time as a family, spending time in the Word, spending time 
in prayer. Perhaps we didn't set a good spiritual example for our children, and then maybe we didn't pray for them, we didn't take them to church regularly, they got older, and then as parents, we have to sit back and look at our children. They don't pray as much as we'd like, or they don't go to church as regularly as we would like, because we didn't set a better example for them. We have to live with that regret then, wondering, are our children do our children not read the word because they never saw us read the word? Do they not go to church regularly because we didn't go to church regularly? Do they not take the things of the Lord seriously because we didn't take the things of the Lord seriously? Maybe we gave into the flesh. We said hurtful things to our spouse or our children. Then as time went on, we can tell that we have changed the way that our spouse or our children feel toward us. Maybe we've made it hard for our children to respect us, and then we're forced to live without guilt or shame because we can't rewind time, take back the things that we said. And we would all say that we did not expect these consequences. If we did expect them, then we wouldn't have committed these sins in the first place. We'd give, you know, just about anything to be able to go back and undo what we did. We can almost look like Judas going back to the temple, trying to undo this damage, but we just can't do anything about it. We can't do any more than he could do about it. Listen to this interesting verse from Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah 2.19, your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. So we do receive discipline for our sin from the Lord, and it's a sign of his love for us. But with this verse, God says, I, I don't even have to discipline you at times. The consequences of your sin can serve as discipline enough. Unfortunately, in some Christian circles, I think it's terribly unloving. It's interesting that in some circles it's considered unloving to talk about sin, to talk about repentance. You're considered legalistic. I think it's particularly unloving not to talk about those things, not to warn people. It's like someone's heading toward a cliff or walking out into the road, and you think it's loving not to say anything to them because you don't want to hurt their feelings or you don't want to tell them that what they're doing is wrong. Some number of churches operate like this. Some number of people who call themselves Christians, and I say call themselves Christians, it's hard for me to believe that people can be Christians if they don't have an appreciation for sin because that's, it's really enforcing that you think Jesus died for nothing. I mean, to be a Christian is to have at least some appreciation for sin because otherwise you don't know what you were saved from. You don't know why Jesus went to the cross for you. And so to me, it's, it's really absurd that there could be individuals who think it's unloving to talk about sin or unloving to talk about repentance. So I'll just tell you, as your pastor, as someone who cares about you, as someone who wants what's best for you, as someone who loves you, make sure you consider, or we should all make sure we consider, that there are decisions we can make and we can't reverse them. Now, sometimes we can. Sometimes God is merciful. Sometimes we can ask for forgiveness. We can repent. But there are plenty of other times when we can set plans in motion. And then no matter how much we might want, we can go back to the temple just like Judas, and we can't undo what we've done. And it is a loving thing to share that with people, to warn them ahead of time. There are plenty of people, and just one example. I don't know the number of women that Katie has talked to or that I have interacted with sometimes husbands at marriage conferences who have told us that they wish someone would have warned them about marrying an unbeliever or about marrying someone who is spiritually immature. And what they're saying basically is, I wish someone had loved me enough 
to tell me that I shouldn't do this. Judas is the best example of Scripture of this in that he was remorseful, he went back, but he could not undo it. At different times, I've heard people defend Judas. They'll minimize his actions. They'll even claim that he was probably a believer, and it always relates to what we're seeing here, that he brought the money back, that he said that he sinned, and that he showed this sorrow over what he did. The problem is that Scripture discusses two types of sorrow. The key verse for this is 2 Corinthians 7.10. It says, Godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, Judas is experiencing great sorrow. There's no denying that. But the question is not whether Judas is experiencing sorrow. We're told that. The question is, what type of sorrow is Judas experiencing? What is it going to produce in his life? And there's only one of two outcomes. It's either godly sorrow that's going to produce repentance, or it's worldly sorrow that's going to produce what? Death. And if you look at verse 5, you get to see the sorrow that Judas experienced. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, and he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. Judas is a perfect example of worldly sorrow. There is nothing in this account to indicate that he repented. In this case, we even see the physical death, but it resulted in his spiritual death as well because he went to hell. And I don't say that from this account. We don't know from this account that Judas went to hell, but there are plenty of other places in Scripture that uh, teach us that. Sometimes because Judas uh, was sorrowful and he returned the money. People can wonder if he went to heaven, but I'll give you some verses that demonstrate that he didn't. In Matthew twenty six twenty four, Jesus said, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it was written of him, but woe to that man, referring to Judas, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good or better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus can only say that if Judas went to hell. Because no matter how bad your life is, if you go to heaven, it's not better if you were not born in the first place. Jesus called Judas a devil. John 6, 70, Jesus said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas Iscariot, for it was he who would betray him. Where do devils go? Devils don't go to heaven. Devils go to hell. Jesus said Judas didn't belong to him, but he belonged to perdition instead. John 17, 12, Jesus said, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition. When Jesus says none of them is lost, it doesn't mean that Jesus lost Judas. This is referring to Judas. It doesn't mean Jesus lost Judas. He loses none of them. Jesus is saying that Judas is a lost individual or an unsaved individual whose destination is perdition, which is another name for hell. When Peter discussed Judas' replacement, in Acts one twenty-five, he said Judas went to his own place, and he's saying this negatively. This is not the way you refer to someone who went to heaven. And so Judas is one of the most sobering and challenging examples in Scripture. He, I mean challenging and sobering for us. He teaches a, a truth that I just think is so important, which brings us to lesson two. Feeling bad isn't repentance. Lesson two, feeling bad isn't repentance. 
feeling bad about what we've done, experiencing sorrow, even experiencing enough sorrow that we would commit suicide, Judas demonstrates to us that that doesn't demonstrate repentance has taken place. And so people can be unbelievably sorrow, remorseful. There can be crying, sobbing. There can be promises. There can be swearing, uh, you know, up one side and down the other about never doing anything like this again and how bad we feel about it. And it doesn't mean that repentance has taken place. Let me share a story with you about a situation that took place when I was in California with a pretty good friend of mine. There was an individual, he was very active in the church. He was even at, at least at one point in a paid position in a church. He lived a very religious lifestyle, I would say, by all outward accounts. He looked like a Christian. And then, I don't know the reasons for this, he decided to begin living a very worldly or immoral lifestyle, uh, a, an example of prodigal living, you might say. He starts engaging in a considerable amount of drinking, partying, womanizing. He basically threw himself into the world, and he engaged in more immorality than even most unbelievers would engage in. I think the world would even look on and probably condemn the way that he was living at this time. And during this time, our friendship, and I would say pretty much his friendship with most of our group of Christian, um, Christian friends, ended. And I didn't really see him, and I just heard uh, something here or there about him and how badly he was doing. But then something happened. <clears throat> he ended up hitting rock bottom. It seemed to me like he had the same experience as the prodigal son, Luke 15, 17. He came to himself, or many translations say the prodigal son came to his senses, and that's what seemed to happen with his friend. And then this friend wanted to meet with me. And I guess because he was so ashamed, he would not even come and meet with me. He sent a mutual friend of ours to ask me if I would meet with him, which, of course, I would. I was glad to meet with him because I, had, I heard that he was regretting some of the things that he had done. And so initially, it was pretty awkward when we got together because I hadn't seen him in a while. Um, I knew how he had been living. He knew that I knew how he had been living. And very quickly, it was obvious about how bad, that he, how bad he felt about what he had been doing and how he had turned from the Lord. He is filled with regret and shame and remorse or great sorrow. He's convicted. He was broken about what had happened. And one of the best parts was he didn't make any excuses. He didn't justify anything. He, uh, there was no minimizing of his sin or acting like it wasn't, hadn't been as bad as it, as it was. It was just plain honesty it was refreshing. I still remember it pretty vividly because it was just one of those wonderful times in my Christian life where you just see someone broken over their sin. It's a really beautiful thing to behold. And I'll tell you what I didn't say to him. I didn't say, I can't believe you acted like that, or God must have been so angry with you, or how could you be in ministry for so long and turn from the Lord like that, or consider the terrible witness you've been. Because when people are, are already broken and down, you don't need to make them feel worse. You don't need to kick them um, when they're down. And I didn't need to say these things because he already knew them. What I did tell him was that even though he felt terrible, my encouragement was I thought this is the best place he'd ever been in. Even before he went on this, you know, downward spiral into sin, because I don't think he was a Christian at that time. And I thought that this was the greatest moment of his life in terms of recognizing his sinfulness and his need for 
a savior. He could repent now. He could be saved. And we prayed together, and I thought it was a very sincere prayer. I still remember at least one part of his prayer where he, he told the Lord that he really missed him. I thought that was a very uh, sweet comment to hear. He knew he had been very far from God. Isaiah 59, 2 says, your sins have separated you from God. He felt that separation. He wanted God back in his life. And I had missed my friend. And I was glad to think about us having a rekindling our friendship. I was thrilled to see all the sorrow he was experiencing. And this sorrow was going to result in one of two things in his life. There's only two possibilities. It was going to result... It was going to be godly sorrow that was going to result in repentance and salvation, or it was worldly sorrow that was going to result in his death. Now, here's why I share this story. Verse 3 says that Judas was remorseful. Now, do you know how many times before this it's ever recorded that Judas was remorseful? Not one. Not one single time. And so what that means is it doesn't even say Judas felt bad when he stole money from the money box. It doesn't say that he felt bad when he met with the religious leaders to betray Jesus. It doesn't say that he felt bad when he kissed Jesus on the cheek and Jesus lovingly asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Even that wasn't enough to send Judas back with remorse to the religious leaders to try to undo what he had done. But now, finally, after watching Jesus be condemned to die, Judas experiences great sorrow. He felt so bad that he returned the 30 pieces of silver, and he even said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And I would say that like my friend, this really could have been the greatest opportunity of Judas' life. I mean, one reason I sort of hesitate to say that is it says that the the devil had entered Judas, and so you can say, well, there's no way that he could have been saved at this point. I'm of the inclination that unless someone is a reprobate, unless they've been given over, then there's all, and maybe Judas was in that, maybe he was in that position. But the fact is, we don't know. We only know because it says that the devil entered him. But for anyone else, when they reach this sort of point of, of low, low, lowliness and brokenness and sorrow over their sin, this could be, for many people, the greatest moment of their lives because this is when they're finally recognizing their need for a Savior. They've come to the end of themselves. They finally reach rock bottom where they can't really look, they can't go down any further, and they can't really look any place but up. But here's what's interesting with Judas, or it's not really interesting. I'd say here's the problem. Judas felt bad. He felt really, really bad, but he did not feel bad enough to repent. And so the question is, what would it have looked like for Judas to repent. We typically say that repentance is turning from sin, and I don't mind this uh, definition, but I feel like we, well, let me back up a little bit. The main reason that we fail with in regards to repentance, or the main reason our repentance typically fails, and I've said this before, we put off without putting on. We stop some behavior without starting the accompanying behavior. We sever without replacing. We, in the language of Ephesians 4 and in Colossians 3, if we're going to put off, we have to also put on. And I think we tend, and that, the, so the main reason that we fail regarding repentance is we put off without putting on. But often when we talk about repentance, we only describe it in terms of putting off. We'll say, hey, you're going to turn from your sin. Well, the, the next question is, what are you going to turn to? 
If you turn from your sin, what are you going to turn to? And if the answer isn't Christ, well, then that's not godly sorrow. That just continues to be worldly sorrow, where you want to stop your sin, but you're not looking toward the Lord. And so it's clear Judas turned from his sin. I I stand by that, that he did turn from his sin. He regretted what he did. He even went back and tried to undo it. He tried to petition the religious leaders to go and do something to help Jesus. Look, he is an innocent man. He should not be condemned to die. That's what's implied in Judas' statement to them. I suspect Judas would not do this again. So he turned from his sin, but he did not turn to Christ. And this brings us to lesson three. Godly sorrow leads to Christ. Godly sorrow leads to Christ. Now, if you fill this in ahead of time, you may, I don't know if anyone's in this category, maybe you put godly sorrow leads to repentance. That's true, but I'm trying to show what it means to repent. And if we truly repent, what it means is we turn to Christ. Godly sorrow leads us to Christ because genuine and sincere repentance is repentance that looks to Christ. And any of the children that are, that are tuning in and listening, and, it's, and if you're at home and maybe you haven't even been listening up to this point, I just want to share something. I want you to know what's happening with your parents every time you do something wrong, every time you look sorry. Because I'll, I'll just tell you this. Every single child that gets in trouble looks sorry. Or every single child that does something wrong and is caught experiences an amount of sorrow. There's no, unless, unless a child has parents that never discipline them or never punishes them, every child experiences some sorrow. And so what your parents are doing as they're looking at you, perhaps while you're crying or while you're apologizing, while you're promising that you'll never do this again, while you're begging them not to spank you or punish you, they're wondering what type of sorrow is in your heart. They're wondering, or we're wondering, if it is worldly sorrow, that's simply sorry about the consequences of what you've done and what your actions have produced, which is what happened with Judas, or if it's godly sorrow, which means a sorrow over sinning against a holy God, sorrow over sinning against a God that loves you, sorrow over falling short of the standard that he has set. You know, in Psalm 51, David says, against you and you only have I sinned. And so every parent is wishing that they had some way to look into your heart and see what is happening there and see whether it's godly sorrow. And so I would ask the children to consider this. I would ask the parents to consider this. I would say this is something that as adults we need to consider. Just the other day when Kate and I were going over the sermon, it takes us a long time to go over the sermon because we end up having typically these, I, I think, productive, helpful conversations. We started considering times in our lives when we have experienced worldly sorrow instead of godly sorrow. As adults, we, there can be times we experience worldly sorrow. And so, the, and so to determine, well, am I experiencing godly sorrow or am I experiencing worldly sorrow? Well, where do you look when you sin? Are you looking at yourself and what you're suffering or experiencing as a result of your sin, then that's worldly sorrow. If you're looking at Jesus, who hung on a cross and died for you, and so you're sorry that you have sinned against him, then that's godly sorrow. And it's not to say that you're afraid you're going to lose your salvation or go to hell as a result of this, but it's simply the sorrow 
that should be part of every Christian's life when they have sinned against the Savior that died for them. And so Judas, he turned from his sin, but he did not turn to Christ. There's no indication of it in the account or in any of the epistles or in Acts that he truly repented. If he was truly repentant, if he had godly sorrow, he would have turned to Christ. I would say this, he would have been more like Peter. Here's what's interesting. Peter and Judas, they kind of are running on parallel tracks toward the end of Jesus' life. Right before, interestingly, Jesus, or right before Judas returned the money to the religious leaders at the beginning of chapter 27, look at the end of chapter 26 and see what transpired right before this, or perhaps transpired at the exact same time, but they can't write about both accounts at the same time, and so Judas occurs right after it. It's when Peter denied Jesus. And so interestingly, you've got two men, two very, very prominent men, or two of the most prominent men, two of the disciples themselves, who were engaging in fairly similar sins. Is it really that much different that Judas betrayed Jesus, but Peter denied Jesus three times, including to a servant girl, including after pridefully boasting that he would not deny Jesus, even if everyone else denied Jesus, and including making that boast after Jesus had graciously and lovingly warned Peter that he would deny him. And so to me, I don't think that Peter's sin was that much worse. And look at the last verse of the previous chapter, the end of chapter 26. 26, Chapter 26, verse 25. This is right after Peter has denied Jesus three times. Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out, and notice this, it doesn't just say that he wept, it doesn't say that he cried, it says that he wept bitterly. He could not be consoled. And so here's what I want to ask you. What was Peter experiencing? I would submit to you that he was experiencing great sorrow, extreme sorrow. He could have been experiencing as much or perhaps even more sorrow than Judas was. We know Peter loved Christ more than Judas did. It's very possible that the sorrow that Peter experienced was worse than Judas' um, sorrow. But did Peter hang himself? Did Peter turn to Christ? Or did Peter turn to Christ? Peter turned to Christ. Peter did not see Jesus again. This is interesting. They had made eye contact, and then Peter went away. And when, and when Peter, because he had been following Jesus, had been able to make eye contact with his Lord, by this point, Jesus was abused. He was beaten. He was bloodied. And Peter could see him. They make eye contact. The rooster crows, and he knows he's denied his Lord, and he just goes out and he weeps uncontrollably. They don't see each other again. Until after Christ's resurrection, Peter's out fishing, and Jesus is standing on the shore, and then listen to this, John 21, 7, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, 
Peter jumped out of the boat and he plunged into the sea and swam toward Jesus. And so here's the point. Peter turned to Christ in a very unique way. He, I mean, there's no denying Christ whatsoever. He turns to Christ, he jumps out of the boat, he swims to him in one of the most unique ways of turning to Christ in all of Scripture. That's what Peter did. So he had great sorrow too, but his sorrow led to repentance, or his sorrow led to turning to Christ. Now, I want to be clear about the relationship I see this having to the coronavirus. A lot of sorrow in the world right now. And it seems it's a sorrow that's going to increase over these coming weeks. And so I think that this is a particularly important sermon for us to consider. Maybe you've heard about suicide being on the rise. I read an article this past week, and the title of it was, More People Died from Suicide Than the Coronavirus in Tennessee This Week. President Trump said, You're going to lose more people by putting a country into a massive recession or depression, you're going to have suicides by the thousands. So whether Trump's statement is true or not, I can tell you this is the case. There's at least enough people talking about suicide because of the amount of sorrow, and there's enough people committing suicide that suicide is on people's radar and they're discussing it as a result of all of the sorrow produced from the coronavirus. And so what sort of sorrow is it? The people who are committing suicide, this is a worldly sorrow that they're experiencing, a worldly sorrow that is leading to their deaths. They're turning from Christ instead of turning to him. This is not to say that anyone who commits suicide is unsaved or going to hell, because they just happen, that happens to be the last sin that they commit, and instead of experiencing godly sorrow, they commit worldly sorrow. In Judas' case, we know that he went to hell because of the other verses that tell us that. So I'm not saying that if someone commits suicide, they went to hell, but I am saying this. If someone's experiencing sorrow and they commit suicide, at least at that moment, it is worldly sorrow. It is not godly sorrow that is leading them back to Christ. Now, Jesus, he told us what is important at a time like this. This is what made me think about this sermon because no, there's no coronavirus in Scripture, but there was a time that Jesus was hearing about calamities or trials or disasters or things afflicting people. And I want you to notice what he said is important at that time. Luke 13, 1, people told Jesus about the Galileans that Pilate had murdered. And Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans who were killed by Pilate were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise punish. This was a trying time for the Jews. There is a reason that they are all praying and longing for their Messiah to come and overthrow the persecution or oppression that they're experiencing. This is a scary time some number of Jews, and not just Jews, but Jews in Galilee around them were being killed. These probably would have been friends or family members that they're losing. People don't get to get up and move and fly across the country or go someplace else. You pretty much grew up and lived your life wherever you were born. You knew all of those people. They're watching their friends dying. They're watching family members being killed by Pilate. It was a terrifying time. They come to the Lord, and what he said is, you better repent or you're going to perish too. But he's not talking about perishing physically. 
He's talking about something even worse. He's talking about perishing spiritually or eternally. After that, Luke 13, 4. Or the 18 people on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were even worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So another difficult time, this disaster takes place, this tower falls, it kills 18 people. And again, what did Jesus say is needed? What did he draw everyone's attention to? He said repentance. He said that's what's important right now. It's interesting. I don't, I don't, I don't think Jesus sounded, where many people would say Jesus doesn't sound particularly sensitive or compassionate. I don't hear any apologies from him. I, I don't hear him coddling people. I don't even hear him trying to comfort the people who've lost loved ones. But what I would say is, he said something that was very compassionate. He said something that was very forgiving. He said the most loving and compassionate thing that could be said, which is, this is a time of repentance. This is what everyone needs to do. If you're looking at people dying, whether it's them being murdered or persecuted by Pilate, whether it's a tower that's falling, or I would say if Jesus could speak to us today, if it's the coronavirus that is taking people's lives, what is needed is repentance. Why is it that when something bad is happening, Jesus keeps bringing it back to repentance? Because as bad as something is, that can lead to physical death. There's something even worse and that is spiritual or eternal death. And so that means whenever a bad situation takes place around us, whether it's people, some amount of crime or people being killed or murdered, like in Jesus' day with Pilate, or whether it's some sort of natural disaster or calamity like a tower falling on people, or whether it's the coronavirus, people still have the same need. They still have the same need. And primarily, it is not physical. No matter what sort of shortage there might be, no matter what people go through physically, financially, emotionally, the greatest need is spiritual. It is repentance and turning to Christ. And I want to close with this. People are experiencing great sorrow. And everyone the world over who is experiencing sorrow at this time is in one of two categories with that sorrow. It is either worldly sorrow that leads to death, their sorrow that leads them away from Christ, or they're experiencing godly sorrow that is producing repentance, which leads to salvation, which is to say they're turning to Christ, they're looking to Christ. So during this time, with whatever sorrow we're experiencing, where are our eyes? Like Pastor Nathan shared the other day in Colossians 3, are we just looking down, around at all of our circumstances and difficulties, or are, I, are our eyes lifted up and fixed on Christ? If we apply Jesus' teaching, the best thing that we can be doing is looking to Christ, and the best thing that we can do for others is point them toward Christ. Father, we thank you for that, that in the middle of everything taking place, the need of man is still the same, whether it's in, in the Gospels in Christ's day or whether it's in the Old Testament or whether it's in Paul's day, in the epistles, or in Acts, or whether it's in our day, 
The need is repentance and looking to Christ. And we thank you for that. And we pray that this would be a time that you would be drawing men to yourself, that it would be a time of revival. We pray that this would be a time that while our world might suffer physically, financially, we even pray, Lord, that you'll introduce whatever is necessary into people's lives, introduce whatever is necessary into our homes, our families, our lives, our states, our countries, introduce whatever is necessary into the world that will cause people to look to your son. We pray for revival, Lord. People say that, and I confess, I don't know that I always want whatever might have to accompany that if it's unpleasant, but we do pray for that, Lord, a revival where people would look to Christ during this time. We pray these things in his name. Amen.